Alright, if you want to open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 9, um, we're continuing through the book of Joshua, and um, they've had the, they've defeated two major cities, um, I was the last one, spelled A-I and Jericho, they defeated as a crossover. And we've seen different responses to what we've seen as the nation of Israel marches forward to battle. We've seen um, the people within Canaan, their hearts have melted within them so that at Jericho, they had no defense. They just gave up. They, didn't, they were unable to fight against the armies of the Lord. And then at I, um, Israel suffers a defeat because of the sin of Achan. And so they learn a, a valuable lesson. Necessary, and then unless the Lord is with you, um, that you're not going to be successful, even against a smaller um, city like I. But then they sacrifice the Lord, and um, sin is atoned for. Achan is killed, and they go in and defeat I. And then we get to chapter nine, and we read: As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan. In the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gideon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they went on their part, acting with cunning, and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins and worn-out and torn and mended with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? And they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? And they said to him, from a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion the king of Heshbon, to Og the king of Bashan who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your land, in your hand, for the journey, and go to meet them, and say to them, We are servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It is still it was still warm when we took it from our houses, and our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals are ours, or, or of ours, are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them, and a covenant with them, and let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. 
At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. <coughs> now their cities were Gibeon, Sapphira, Beeroth, and Kirath Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us? saying, We're very far from you, when you dwell among us. Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants, for a certainty, that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel. And they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord. And to this day in the place that he should choose. The word of the Lord. So... If you, you know, if you kept up with that, and you're reading along, and you kind of see what's happening, you have, at the very beginning of this, you have the people, the kings of this area have now heard what's going on. And you hear this interesting thing from the Gibeonites, and we're going to hear a... She recognized that the God of Israel um, was the true God. And we hear that from the Gibeonites. But, but what we see is in the first group, this group of nations, this group of kings, they come together to um, band together as, 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 a, um, as a group to attack Israel because of strength in numbers. And so rather than their hearts melting, they've decided that we can have all of us get together and we'll band together and we'll fight. And it could be that because of the sin of Achan, where there was a defeat of Israel, the city of Ai, that, that that word got out and that strengthened and emboldened some of the people to say, we saw them run away one time. Maybe if we had even more people, we can see them run away again. And so we see some of the outworking of sin among Israel, um, maybe even causing this to happen. But then we see this interesting thing with the, the Gibeonites. And so they've heard... And they do this thing where they're going to lie. They're going to come up with this thing. They even know somehow that God has told them not to make covenants with the people that live there. And these people are of, of the Hivites. And if you look at Deuteronomy, because this is the problem. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 16. So Deuteronomy 20, verse 16 through 18. God is, is speaking and he says, But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance... You shall save nothing alive that breathes, but, when you shall, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. 
the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. So, this is sort of the, the first point that we see here, is this problem, they did not consult the Lord, and they've made a covenant against these people. Look at verse 14 in, in Joshua chapter 9. It says, So the man took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And they had Eleazar, the chief priest. They could have easily have just gone to Eleazar and just said, let's, let's ask the Lord what we're to do in this situation. But they didn't. And this, this over and over becomes a problem for the people of the Lord. And you have to look at what happens. They make a covenant with people that they're specifically told not to make a covenant with. So, but they didn't know. And then they find out. And so now what do you do? You're in a tight spot. This is... And here they are, and they travel three days. That's all it took to get to their city. And they're in the land of Canaan, and, and we were supposed to destroy them. God told us not to make covenant, but they had already made covenant. So we see beginning in verse 16 that they decided not to compound their foolish sin by dishonoring a covenant made in the name of the Lord. And that's an interesting thing, because they could have said, well... They lied to us. This covenant is null and void. But they knew they couldn't do that because covenants are different than contracts. Um, a covenant is something that is, is often said, you know, this is what I'm going to do and this is what you're going to do. And, you know, a contract is for a certain period of time usually. But a covenant is something that's perpetual. And, you know, you see the Ten Commandments, all of these things being a covenant that God makes with his people. We see the, you know, the covenant... With, with Moses, you see the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with, with Noah, all these covenants throughout Scripture. And now you have the people of God making a covenant in the name of the Lord with somebody they weren't supposed to be making covenants with, but they didn't know who they were making a covenant with, but they didn't inquire to the Lord, so they're still culpable for their actions. They're still held accountable for this. But here you are, now you have done something. You've gotten yourself into a tight spot. You have, you have through your sin or through your, I'm trying to make things, I'm just I'm manipulating things. I'm not happy about this. I'm not happy about that. And maybe God doesn't want me to do this or that. And you just sort of go, you know, and I talk about this little girl, Mary Catherine, uh, that we knew that was autistic or, or something. And she um, wanted dessert. And we were at a church function, and she knew that her father did not want her to have any more dessert. She'd already had plenty of dessert. And so she went up, and she stuck her fingers in her ears so she couldn't hear him. When, but her problem was, every time she'd take a finger out to grab a dessert, she could hear her father saying, Mary Catherine. So she kept trying to block out the voice of her father to be able to just obey him. But we're better than Mary Catherine is at that. We are very good at blocking out the voice of our father telling us, no, no, or yes, yes, and we're just like, oh, I don't want to do this, I'm, I'm going to fix my, you know, my life is going this way, I see hardship, I don't like it, um, I'm going to come over here and play with, tinker with my life a little bit, and then I'll come back on the good and righteous path eventually, after I've got all this stuff fixed over here. 
But what, what happens with God, though, is when you go back to here, if you're a child of God, he's going to take you back to here and say, hey, okay, welcome back. Now let's talk about this. You know, let's deal with this. Um, it's never good for a child of God. It's never good for anybody to, to live apart from hearing the voice of God. But in verse 18, we see that the people did not attack because we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And it's, very, it's a covenantal name, Yahweh Elohim Yisrael. It's a, it's a name you don't see a whole lot in Scripture except associated with these strong covenants that God makes. So uh, Lord, you see it in all capitals, that's Yahweh. And then God is plural, you know, is um, the Elohim of Israel. So Yahweh Elohim, Israel, that's a powerful name of God, and they're recognizing it, and we made a covenant in the name of God. And so they decide that what they need to do is obey, is not to further compound their sin by destroying a covenant that they had made. Covenants of the Lord are sacred. The name of the Lord is sacred. Vows made in the name of the Lord are sacred. And one of the reasons we call marriage a covenant rather than a contract is that you can break a contract. You can't just break a covenant. It's spiritually binding. It's not just for a limited time. There's no if-then statements. It's other than till death do us part. And so God shows there are things that can happen that violate one person has violated the covenant. And therefore, it can be broken with the new covenant the stipulation is faith if we do not have faith that's our role in the covenant by faith we're hidden in christ by faith all the promises of god are yes and amen you can be baptized and not have faith you can take the lord's supper and not have faith you can read the bible and not have faith you can you know pray to god and not have faith you can go to church you can sing praises you can do all these things but without faith you're just heaping condemnation on yourself. And so God says, you know, your faith, that's why trials come into a believer's life, so that it can test your faith, testing in the sense of um, getting rid of the dross of your faith. Your faith needs to be strengthened. Things happen in our lives, and when something bad happens, I mean, that's when your faith gets stronger, and that's necessary, and God says that your faith is the most valuable thing that you have. And so covenants are also made for the benefit of the other person. And so we see that here. We make a covenant that we're not going to kill you guys. You know, that's the thing. And maybe that should be part of the marriage covenant. We won't kill each other. But that, um, you know, that we promise to love one another. We promise to, to, to obey the Lord in these things. Covenants are extremely serious agreements and are not to be taken lightly. We take covenantal vows when we join a church. That's a, that's a vow. That's, a, that's an important vow before the Lord not to be taken lightly. And too many people today, I mean, I hate to be self-serving and talk about you know, people, all oh, you guys, you're not going anywhere. However, there are people in some churches that they just jump like this. You know, any little thing. They're not going to work through it. Think about it like a marriage. Okay. What if marriages maybe were like this? Where people don't want to work through stuff. They just want to get mad and I'm done. I'm going to go somewhere else. You know, I'm bored with this wife. I'm going to go take another wife. It's like, uh, 
work things out. If you've been married for any amount of time, you know that the richness of the marriage is found in working things out. It's found in repentance and forgiveness and mercy and grace and, and trusting God with your obedience and, and all of these things. Now, I know there are some people who are going to say, you go to extremes. What about somebody that's, you know, you know, threatening to shoot me with a gun every night? You know, it's like, I'm not talking about, yes, there are times when divorce is necessary, separation is necessary, and these things occur. I'm talking about in our typical marriages that are typically difficult because two sinners got married, okay? So the best thing, no, sorry to say, the best thing you can do is marry somebody that's not a sinner, but they'll... They won't get along with you. So, you know, God's put you together in such a way that when Tim Keller's in his book, The Purpose of Marriage, one of the points he makes is um, you're not married to the person that you, that you originally married, that we change. And so um, if, you, if you're looking for your soulmate, it's like, well, that's not a, a thing. Um, you covenanted to love somebody. That's that chesed. It's this promised love that goes beyond mere feeling and emotion it is a covenanted thing and israel here recognizes the seriousness of covenantal vows and so much so that they're thinking the vow is more important than the command to wipe people out which i don't know how you maybe they went to the lord for this but they recognize that the most sacred thing was the vow so at least here, they try to do the right thing. And the people don't like it. You know, you guys messed up. I mean, that's how we are of our leaders. You know, you messed up. Not that they wouldn't have done the same thing, but, you know, you messed up. And so they grumble against them. And so we have to say, well, where's the gospel in this? And it's really, I hope you can see it. It's, you know, this first point here. It's like there's this problem that they did not ask the counsel of the Lord. That's the root of this problem. You can say, well, what's the problem? Problem is these people lied to them. Everybody lies. That's not the problem. The problem is these people made a covenant with other people without seeking the Lord in this. They made major decisions without seeking the counsel of the Lord. And part of our problem is we'll say, I'll make... I'll take counsel of the Lord with my major decisions, but these little minor things, I don't want to bother God with them. And what we have to understand is the minor things are not minor things. That sometimes it's that minor thing that turns out to be a huge, big thing. And it's just like if you get a little, if your two lines are going together and you get a little bit of an angle down here, the further out you go, the further apart, you know, you have these repercussions that keep going out and out. So you have to make sure you're inquiring of the Lord at each step of your life and all these decision-making processes. We're going to talk about how we do that a little bit, but it's obvious for the unbeliever not taking counsel of the Lord. You can see it. They're blind. Always running here or there, trying to figure out a way, their way around in the world in darkness. But it's not complete darkness because God's given them a conscience. God's given them a mind. People are created in the likeness and image of God. They have the, a conscience if they haven't seared it completely yet. Um, they have logical brains. There's lots of things, common graces, that God has given to all people to enable all people to be able to get along in this world. Some atheists, some non-believers um, have contributed great things to the advancement of the world. So it's not that they have complete darkness, but when it comes to the spiritual things of the Lord, they're dead. 
and they're being manipulated by God on the one hand or the world, the flesh, Satan on the other hand. But what we're going to see is God is ultimately the one who is absolutely in control of all things. But non-believers are dead in the trespasses and sin. They are, um, God calls a crooked and twisted generation. So even though they, they may be in their own minds trying to do what's right, you can see it. Just as the more um, animated a, a secular culture becomes, the more they fight for what they see to be right and truth. You just see perversion and you see calamity and you see anger and you see the fruit of these things. And so we're supposed to be light and point people to that light. So we, even as believers, how often do we go about in our lives without inquiring of the Lord? Through prayer, and you pray for wisdom, and God promises to give wisdom to people. You just have to ask for wisdom and for his providential guidance. Just God help things work out right. If, I make, if, I'm, if I'm faced with choice A or choice B, if I make choice B, and that's not what I should do, then just make it collapse in my hand, and you know, whichever. Give me wisdom to make the correct choice to begin with. But instead, we do tend to do it all in our own power. We put a little bit of God over here and a whole lot of personal reasoning and living by emotions over there and do things our own way. But what does the, Lord, the word of God say? He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Seek the Lord while he may be found. And he's not far from any of us. Call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. Pray constantly. You have not because you ask not. And when you do ask, you ask for stuff to spend on your sinful desires. Put other people in front of yourself. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. And he says in the prophets, these people have honored me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So we have to have our hearts. And again, again, in scripture, you see, this is what God is after, your heart. But if you're not counseling of the Lord, it's easy to see your heart is not there. Your, your heart is following after your own desires and your own, your own methods. So it's easy to drift away from the Lord without realizing it. Um, it's a little cold to be talking about the beach, but this is what I tend to think of when I think about drifting. You, you go out in the ocean, you know, your, your house or your, your umbrella is right there, and you go out in the ocean and you're... You're playing, you know, hoping you don't get eaten by a shark and stuff. And then the next thing you know, it's like you look and you're like way down here, depending on what beach you're on, or you're way down here. You know, you just, you drift and you don't realize you're drifting because you're out there focused on what's right in front of you. And then it's very easy for us in our lives to do exactly the same thing with God. We're busy at work, we're doing things, we're entertaining, we're um, trying to focus on our children, trying to focus on our job, we're trying to focus on our families, trying to focus on our wives, trying to focus on our house. But you get all these things that are not wrong to be focusing on, but if you don't keep your eye on the Lord, if you don't keep your eye on your umbrella at the beach, pretty soon, long enough, you're, you're gone, and, and God forbid a riptide come into your life and, and suck you out, you know, but just normal, everyday, floating around life, if you're not intentional about centering your life around Christ, you drift. And then what happens? 
we're all upset because God has taken us so far away. We're going to blame God. We're going to blame circumstances. We're going to blame, 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 blame. And that's what is the central problem of our lives. But even in those situations, we need to be seeking the counsel of the Lord. Why am I in this situation? And some situations come completely from the outside. And some people just seem to deal with things that are just constant. And it's terrible to see what some people just seem to go through. Um, but even for them, they have to be careful the way you deal with sin and it's very, or deal with problems. You, you can't respond sinfully to sin. That just creates more and more problems for us. And that's, but that's what we end up doing is trying to respond sinfully to sin, either sinfully angry or we love people so much that we want to love them in their sin and we don't want to confess truth to them. We don't want to call them to repentance because we don't want to cause problems. And then it's just, you're not centered on the Lord. You can be drifted so far down that you may actually be called up in the very problems that these other people have. So our problem is not seeking the Lord. Second, what I see here is that God has sovereignly chosen to save the Gibeonites. It's kind of an interesting thing that has happened. He has somehow or sovereignly ordained that the Gibeonites are going to be saved. Rahab was saved. And now the Gibeonites are saved. But you might look at that and go, no, no, no. They lied. They shouldn't have been saved. Israel shouldn't have done this. And it's like, uh, and yet, what happens to the Gibeonites? They have a peace covenant made. And they get a curse. You know, what should have happened? You know, and, I, and now you're in complete speculation, but I would think that maybe they should have come up and thrown themselves on the ground before them and said, do with us as you will. We live in this land. Your God is the true God. We want to worship him too. And we're sorry. We repent. Please save us. I mean, Jonah didn't even want to go to um, Nineveh because he realized that God's probably not going to kill them. He's going, they're going to repent. And sure enough, you know, God's going to save them. So... Maybe that's what should have happened. But that's not how God worked. And Sinclair Ferguson has a great quote. He says, um, God uses sin sinlessly. So that God uses the sin of the Gibeonites, the sin of the Israelites, to save the Gibeonites. It's really quite remarkable to see. And then they get cursed by working close to the temple of the Lord. It's pretty amazing. And they're there for a long time. Even Saul, nobody likes them. Saul even tries to wipe them out, causes a big problem, for, and David has to come in and, and help with all this. But the Gibeonites become a part of Israel. I mean, they, they, they're always there. They learn of the Lord. They're, they're blessed by being there. They're blessed just by being left alive. And, and so are we. But Israel was stuck. They sinned, and then they had to say, what are we going to do? And this is key, that there is always a right direction to go. No matter how lost you are, no matter what a mess you've made of in your life and what problems you find yourself in, there is always a right direction to go from there. It may not be the easiest thing, and most typically it will harm you or hurt you in the short term, but what gets you into those situations to begin with is just doing things that make you feel better. But no matter how tangled that mess is, there's a way to start. I like 
Christmas vacation. Um, Clark hand, hands Rusty that big, giant, mangled ball of Christmas lights and says, here, Rusty, you know, and he's like, here it is. How do you do that? One light at a time. You start. Don't keep making it worse. And it might take a very long time. But in that untangling of the mess, in obedience to the Lord, trying to straighten out things, character is developed. Faith is developed. Love can be developed. You face the unknown monsters that you've been trying to protect yourself from and just screwing your life up. And then suddenly you start trying to walk in right paths of faith and you just know this is going to destroy you, but you got to say, no, I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to do what's right. And then you see him at work. And that's very difficult to go from, it's odd, but you promise you don't see what you're doing. You know, I mean, I, I do that every year. I make a mess with the Christmas lights because I'm very carefully wrapping them around like this. You know, know what I'm doing. I do them like this. I stick them in, you know, it's like, I know what's going to happen. But there I am, still doing it. There's got to be something I can Google that tells me the right way to do this. And I'm sure somebody, thank you, someone will come up to me or send me a message soon about how to properly store Christmas lights. Do the same thing with your life. How to properly walk in obedience to the Lord. That sometimes we're called to live obediently amidst the results of our own foolishness, sin, and folly. Um, one of the non-Christian guys I like to listen to, he's got a lot of good points, is um, Jordan Peterson, and one of his, his 12 rules for life that are pretty good. And he says, um, do what's right, not just what's expedient. And expedient means um, it's speedy, easy, convenient, it's good for you. Do what's right, not just what seems to work best for you at the current time. That's how you make a mess of things. Um, do what's right. Keep your promises. Because our God is a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. And that's why Jesus says at one point, don't swear by the heavens or above or the angels. Rather let your yes be yes or your no be no. Just do what's right. Be honest, be truthful, be the type of person that people can depend on, be trustworthy. And that's one of the ways your light shines, just to speak truth. Another one of the 12 rules that Jordan Peterson has is always tell the truth. At least don't lie. And that second part is important because if you always tell the truth, you can get yourself into some trouble. So at least don't lie. You know, you know, how does this hat look on me? Well, you know, I like the hat. You didn't necessarily say you liked it on them. <laughs> but I don't know. You different things. Temper truth with love. I mean, but you don't turn it into a lie. So there are some things you just might not say, but you don't lie and that is the beginning of untangling your life is the beginning just to tell the truth and it is unbelievable if you just watch yourself throughout the day the lies that you will tell personally to yourself to other people um, it's unbelievable the way we can lie so easily you know we lie about why we weren't here why we weren't there why we did this why we didn't do that what we're going to do just stuff but if you can begin to say you know i'm just going to start telling the truth even if it's going to hurt me, it doesn't mean you have to go out and start announcing things, but it does mean if it comes between me making up something and me telling the truth, I'm going to figure out the way that I can tell the truth in a true way. And then that gets to be a habit. So that truth becomes the way you talk. And then people can trust you when they ask you things. 
And the Bible says, speak the truth in love. And it really is the only way to begin to untangle the messes that we're in. Because Jesus says, too, the truth shall set you free. Culture uses that a lot. Um, but what he says is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I am the truth. And Christ sets us free. But we have to be careful because lies are of the devil. And we're lied to a lot. And if you turn to Titus chapter 2, verse 11. So it's back, all Paul's stuff is together before you get to Hebrews and James, but the T's are all together in alphabetical order. Titus, it's the book right before Philemon and Hebrews. Titus chapter 2, beginning of verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So we should be zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. But sometimes we can be careful because the word obedience can sound really bad. And we don't want to be legalistic. We want everybody to know the love of God, the grace of God. And yeah. And you see what it says in verse 11. The grace of God has appeared training us to renounce ungodliness. That's what the grace of God does. It teaches, trains us. To renounce ungodliness. Because grace appears when you deserve wrath. So when you recognize that you deserve wrath. And you get good things from God instead. That doesn't make a person who's a recipient of grace go. Ha ha. Let me sin so that grace may abound. It doesn't. It humbles us. And it helps us to see how good God is. And that I need to obey him to begin with. Because it always comes through a path of repentance. It always comes through a path where the Holy Spirit is at work in us. Well, we recognize our sinfulness. We recognize how far we fall apart from him and that following him is following a gracious path. And you're still going to make messes of your lives, but some of the messes aren't actually messes. They're things that God is working on and it just appears to be bad to us from our perspective. So we just have to trust that God is in control. So then one last final point. Our first point was we get ourselves into terrible situations when we ignore the Lord. Secondly, God sovereignly rescues his people and leads them on paths of righteousness for his namesake. And then third, it's this you know, title of our sermon here, Dealing with Liars. And how do we deal with, with liars? And, and here's the problem. We are the liars. And how does God deal with us? Is God dealing with the liars? And of course, we have to deal with liars too. But we're the liars. How does God deal with us? First um, Timothy 4, we read this. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings with, of demons through the insincerity of liars 
whose consciences are seared. So we had to deal with liars too. And the only way we're going to be able to deal with liars is if we're able to know the word of God. So in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. That just sounds crazy, but man, you see it. Deceitful spirits. And there can be people in the church that are following spirits or angels or something, and they believe them to be telling the truth. But you have to be careful because these can be deceitful, lying spirits. Teachings of demons and the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. We have to be aware there are False teachers, false prophets. Matthew 7, 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So we have to be aware that there are false teachers, that there are false prophets, there, there are false, there's false spiritual powers. And the only way you recognize that is by training yourself to recognize the truth, to be in Christ, to learn to follow him. And then if, if you're always following a leader, then another leader comes in and starts taking you a different way. You, you recognize it. And that's why the Bible says that the sheep know the shepherd. So you got to know the shepherd. If you know the shepherd, then you take counsel of him. You listen to him. You go to him. But if you don't, it's very simple for us to take control of our own lives and end up in some little private hell where you can't extract yourself from. But God can get there, and we can get there, and we can pray for people, and we can reach people, and then all you do is call in the name of the Lord, and you shall be saved. But the, the Israelites' problem with the Gibeonites was not that the Gibeonites lied, it's that the Israelites did not take counsel of the Lord. But they did keep their promises. Even when they realized they'd been lied to, they still kept the promises and God keeps his promises and we can always be sure that if he said he's going to save us if we believe in him he will save us and nobody can snatch us from his hand and we are his and he is ours and there's truth and he loves us and he will discipline those he loves but it's for the purpose of making us more like Christ he cares about us and all we have to do is I don't want to say it's act like we care about him, but it's actually to care about him. But let your behavior show it so that when we're faced with difficult problems, we know we're not there alone. Let's pray. Father God, help us to trust you. Help us to love you with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our strength. Help us to follow you. Help us to believe in you. Help us to trust you with our obedience. Help us to trust you with the truth. We know that you've promised never to leave us, never to forsake us. And you have promised. And one of the things your word tells us is that you cannot lie. So Lord, keep us from these things. Satan was a liar from the beginning. He's a father of lies. When we lie, we're acting out of that nature. We're, act we're following him. Help us not to do that. We don't want to do that. Help us not to be deceived. You've given us your spirit. You've given us your word. You've given us a church. You've given us the Lord's Supper, baptism, prayer, believers, all these things. Help us to cling to them. And we pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.